Welcome to the weekly sermons and studies podcast at First Baptist. Today's speaker is our senior pastor, Dr. Jeff Reynolds. Let's pray together. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And so, Lord, in the mighty name of Jesus, we come to you, boldly approaching your throne of grace, recognizing that it is only through the cross and resurrection of Jesus Christ by which we are able to come to you. But, Lord, through the cross and resurrection of Jesus Christ, His eternal sacrifice, His victory over sin and death and hell and the grave, we come before you now, turning to your Word, praying that through your Word you would speak your truth into our lives, that you would admonish us, strengthen us, warn us, and encourage us. So that, Lord, when this time together comes to an end, we leave different, that we would be more like Jesus, for it's in that mighty and precious and holy name that we pray, amen. Well, today is a special day, and it's a tradition at our church that has long uh, since before I got here been a part of who we are, and that is praying over our new drivers, and we take that very seriously here. That is one of the milestones that uh, we celebrate in this country, that, that when you turn 16, you can get behind the wheel of a speeding projectile, and you become part of that community of drivers on the roads, the highways, the byways, and we hope you stay out of the hedges and all those sorts of things. But we take it very seriously because it's really kind of a coming-of-age moment uh, in all of our lives. It's an opportunity for us to have a sort of freedom that we haven't had before. You remember being a new driver, don't you? I'll never forget the first day that I got my license. I mean, it was free and clear. It wasn't a permit anymore. It was a license. I got into my 1989 Nissan Sentra that my classmates used to joke with me that one day I would walk up carrying it. It was so small, and it was so prone to breaking down. But I got into my 1989 Nissan Sentra red with oxidized paint. It was a four-speed, four on the floor. Wasn't even a five-speed. Didn't have overdrive. And I met my friends for a fine dining experience out at Ryan's Steakhouse. How many of you remember Ryan's Steakhouse? I don't know if they had any Michelin stars, but we sure liked it. And we went out after football practice, and we were ready. And we were very excited, so we had our fine dining experience, and then we were going to the next place, and I pulled out of Ryan's and then pulled over what was, you know, a smaller bridge over I-65 at that point. And I was so excited to have that freedom. I had the windows rolled down. And incidentally, in a 1989 Nissan Sentra, you literally had to roll the windows down. Kids today have no clue what roll the windows down means. How many of you remember having a car where you had to do some curls to get those windows down? You remember that? How many of you remember cars that didn't have air conditioning? Can you imagine a world like that? My, my dad's older sister was nine years older than him, and when she was driving both of them to Warren County High School, she was going to high school, he was going to elementary school, she rode with the windows rolled up in the hottest part of the summer to give the illusion that she had air conditioning. <laughs> she did not. 
And my dad said he would just sit there with sweat pouring. But she looked cool, even if she didn't feel that way. So I had the windows rolled down, and I'm coming down Scottsville Road, and, and it's dusk, it's starting to get dark outside, and there's a police officer who comes up next to me, and I may or may not have been going a little faster than I should have. And I did what you still do this day. I tapped on the brakes to slow down because I knew on my first day of freedom, if I got a ticket, the freedom would come to an end. What I didn't realize is I hadn't turned my headlights on. Back in those days, you had to actually turn the headlights on. The car didn't sense that it was dark and just do it for you. And it could have gone so bad so quickly. Well, we pray for our new drivers because we all remember when we were new drivers. My wife and I, we're Lord willing, We'll have a new driver next year, and that scares us to death. I mean, we are at the point in parenting where we have left baby gates and five-point harnesses. How many of you know that there, there's a joy when all you got to do is put up a gate and remember to close it? That's right. Or you strap them in to that thing that it takes you forever to learn how to get them strapped into, and you put them in, and they go where you want them to go. There's a joy to that that we didn't realize at the time, and that is called boundaries that are very easy to impose. Well, as they get older, let me tell you what we're learning happens. Those boundaries aren't nearly as easy to impose. Sometimes I wish we could put our teenager in a room with baby gates and that that would be effective. But more and more, he is reaching an age where he has to make decisions of increasing consequence on his own. He's not around us as much. And he's being exposed to some increasingly grown-up things where he is having to make decisions. And the thing about it is, the decisions that he's having to make in this moment increasingly could mean life or death increasingly could mean consequences and logical outcomes to the decisions that he makes that have lasting effects in his life. And so his mother and I have increased our warnings. How many of you have ever done that? You increase your warnings to your children. I know it's still going to go. I know there's more to come. I, trust me, I'm, I'm not uh, naive enough to know how naive I really am. But the warnings are increasing, and the seriousness and the severity of the logical outcomes of the decisions against which we are warning him, it's increasing too. Why? Because there's no baby gate that can keep him safe right now. There's no five-point harness that can keep him safe right now. Now, we do have Life 360. How many of you are thankful for Life 360? Does anybody know what I'm talking about? It's an app on your phone where you can watch where they are. And it doesn't matter where they are in the world. You can just watch them as long as they've got their cell phone with them. In fact, the first day of school this year, my son climbed into the car with a young lady that I've known since before she was born. Wonderful young lady, trustworthy, smart, kind, and wonderful. And she was going to drive him to school. So I watched as those taillights went to the end of the road and then made a right turn, and then they went out of my view. So you know what I did? I took advantage of some satellites that were linking up in outer space, and I pulled my phone out of my pocket, and I watched them all the way to school. I walked the dog just to kind of keep my mind off of it, but I watched it, and I knew when they were hitting traffic. I'm, I mean, it tells you how fast they're going. I'm really glad they didn't have Life 360 when I was 16. Probably wouldn't have gone well for me. 
but boy, I was on it. Yeah, I mean, you know what I'm saying? Why do we do that? Why do we give warnings? Well, because we love them enough to tell them the truth, right? That's why we give warnings. You know, God warns us. Why does He do that? Because He loves us enough to tell us the truth. And so I want to invite you to turn with me to Luke chapter 13 today. Luke chapter 13, Jesus is going to be speaking to us, and He's going to give us some warnings. And why is He going to give us some warnings? Because He loves us. Incidentally, if you're in the Red Pew Bible here in the room, that's page 872, page 872. We're going to look at verses 1 through 9 of Luke 13. But, but let me tell you why Jesus warns us, because the words that He's getting ready to speak are going to be pretty straightforward. In fact, they're going to be remarkably straightforward. Jesus doesn't mince words. But He gives those warnings to us because He loves us. Satan, on the other hand, Satan likes to mask the logical outcomes of our decisions. How many of you have found that in your life? Satan wants to appear to be your best friend when he's bringing you the temptation. And there's no temptation that you've ever succumbed to that was not alluring in the moment. And the reason it was alluring in the moment is because he showed you, in tempting you, what the temporary happiness would be. What he didn't show you, and in fact, what I think Satan does his very best to keep from showing us, is the logical outcome of the decisions that we make. And when you start smoking or vaping or whatever that is, you're not thinking about COPD. You're not thinking about lung cancer. You've got all the time in the world and that won't get you, right? When you start drinking, you're not thinking about cirrhosis of the liver. You're not thinking about the potential for a car wreck in which you wreck your life and potentially destroy somebody else's world. That's what Satan does. He, he doesn't show us the logical outcome of the decisions that we're making. You know, when you're engaging in that relationship with someone the Bible clearly tells you you shouldn't be engaging with, then there can be a lot of outcomes that result from that. Mental outcomes, emotional outcomes, even physical outcomes, but Satan doesn't allow you to see that. No, 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 no. Just enjoy the fun. And the problem is, Satan, well, I heard Andy Griffin put it this way. Andy Griffith put it this way one time. There's an old episode. How many of y'all remember the Andy Griffith Show? Some people have no idea what I'm talking about. But the Andy Griffith Show, Buddy Epson was on there, and he was a drifter. And he was a drifter where you just do whatever you want. Now, he wasn't Jed Clampett at the time, but he looked like Jed Clampett, okay? And Opie was just taken by him because this drifter just did whatever he wanted, and he was teaching Opie to do whatever Opie wanted. And Andy had to have words with the drifter about his son because Andy knew that the drifter would drift in and drift out, but there would be lasting damage in Opie. And so Andy talks to the drifter and said, here's the thing. You have taught my son things that I'm going to have to undo for years. And Buddy Epson said, well, I think it'd be all right if kids got the ability to just make decisions for themselves. And Andy said, well, that's where you're wrong. No, I'm in his life to help him know the difference between right and wrong and to know that there is pain in discipline, but there's also greater pain in outcomes and so, no, I'm not here to let my child do whatever he feels like is good for him. I'm here to set up boundaries that will help him learn how to make an independent moral decision as he grows to adulthood. And so, Andy invites Buddy Epson to leave town. 
Because he said, the things that you're selling him look awfully shiny. They look awfully shiny and attractive. And by the time he grabs a hold of that lure, he doesn't realize there's a hook. You ever done that? You ever grabbed a hold of something shiny, looked fun, looked exciting? And just as soon as you got a hold of it, there was a hook in it? That's what Satan does. Jesus loves us too much to do that. So Luke chapter 13, verses 1 through 9. We're going to start with verses 1 through 5. But this is the theme today. Jesus has warned all, and Jesus warns me. Jesus has warned all, and Jesus warns me. Luke the physician writes as he's carried along by the Holy Spirit, saying this. There were some present at that very time who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And he answered them, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them. Do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Our first point today is this. Jesus warns us not to think ourselves better than others. Jesus warns us not to think ourselves better than others. Two events are described here. Uh, that we don't really have any other information about, but they were disasters that fell upon certain people. And apparently, the temptation that Jesus' hearers had was to think that because disaster had befallen them, they had done something wrong. It's the same sort of error that Job's friends got into. You remember Job's friends when they showed up after he had lost everything? They did a great job at first. They got there, and they, they were silent, and they mourned with him. And then Job spoke, spoke, and then Eliphaz the Temanite, his friend, said in Job chapter 4, verses 7 through 9, Remember, who that was innocent ever perished, or where were the upright cut off? As I have seen, those who plow iniquity and sow trouble reap the same. By the breath of God they perish, and by the blast of his anger they are consumed. Now, what is Eliphaz saying? He's saying that sin leads to consequences. That's true. But what is Eliphaz inferring? He's saying that because Job has suffered, there must have been sin that led to those consequences. That's not true. There's a difference there. God is retributive in his justice, but just because somebody is struggling doesn't mean that there was a sin that caused that struggle to come. And in fact, at the end of the book, in Job 42 verse 7, The Bible says that after the Lord had spoken these words to Job, the Lord said to Eliphaz the Temanite, My anger burns against you and against your two friends, for you have not spoken of me what is right as my servant Job has. It's very easy for us to look at somebody who's struggling and say, Boy, I wonder what they did. In John chapter 9, Jesus and his disciples come upon a man who was born blind. And the disciples ask him a question. Rabbi... Who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Because there was a pervasive uh, thought pattern at that time that anyone who was born with some sort of congenital disorder, disease, issue, anything, that either 
the baby sinned in utero or the parents sinned leading to that condition. And Jesus replies to them very straightforwardly, it is not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. So in other words, it's easy to look at somebody who's struggling and say, boy, I wonder what they did. Do you remember when Katrina hit? And all these great preachers are saying, well, I'll tell you why Katrina hit. Because they sin in New Orleans. And if you've ever been to New Orleans, you know they sin in New Orleans. But you know where else they sin? Bowling Green, Kentucky. And so if God's handing out hurricanes for sin, we deserve one too. And so does everybody else. We don't look at somebody who's been struggling and say, well, I wonder what they did. That's not how it works. Does sin have logical outcomes and consequences? Of course. But it's not our job to say, well, you're facing this outcome. I wonder what you did. No, God warns against this. In Romans 12, verse 3, Paul writes, for by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of yourself more highly than you ought to think but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. Do not think of yourself more highly than you ought. And we all have this temptation, don't we? Those people are wrong, and I'm right. And God commands us not to do that. Jesus told the parable of the, the Pharisee and the tax collector. Both of them went up to the temple to pray. And the Pharisee's prayer was, well, he was very proud of himself. He prayed like this, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector over here. I fast twice a week and give tithes of all that I get. Well, what a prayer, huh? Jesus went on to say that the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God... Be merciful to me, a sinner. And then Jesus said, I tell you, this man, the tax collector who asked God for mercy, went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. We come to God with empty hands. We don't come to God with our self-righteousness. God hates self-righteousness. We don't bring Him anything but our sinful selves and say, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. And through Jesus Christ, He does. He does. And then, once we're in Jesus Christ, we can begin to live out this faith once for all delivered to the saints and do deeds that are truly righteous in the power of the Holy Spirit. That's the way it works. We don't justify ourselves before God. We receive His justification through the cross and resurrection of Jesus, and then we live in the transformation that He brings about in our lives. That's how this works. And so, don't think yourself better than somebody else. They may be tempted differently from you, but you're still tempted too. The ground is level at the foot of the cross. We all come to Christ, sinners in need of a Savior, in need of mercy. But then Jesus tells another parable in verse 6. And he told this parable. A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came seeking fruit on it and found none. And he said to the vine dresser, Look, 
For three years now, I've come seeking fruit on this fig tree, and I find none. Cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? And he answered him, Sir, let it alone this year also, until I dig around it and put on manure. Then, if it should bear fruit next year, well and good. But if not, you can cut it down. Our second point. Jesus warns us not to presume upon the long-suffering of God. Jesus warns us not to presume upon the long-suffering of God. So don't think of yourself as better than anybody else, but also don't presume upon the long-suffering of God. This parable is about Israel. God's people ought to have been bearing fruit in keeping with their relationship with Yahweh. Once you and I come to Jesus Christ, we ought to bear fruit in keeping with our relationship with Yahweh. Jesus said multiple times, you will know a tree by its fruit. So in other words, if you prayed a prayer receiving Jesus, but then nothing has changed in your life, then you uttered empty words because you can't come to Christ without being transformed. Let me say that again. If you uttered some words saying, Jesus, come into my life, but nothing about you has changed, those were empty words. Remember, God listens to our heart, not our lips. No, if I come to Christ turning away from sin and surrendering myself to Jesus, then His Holy Spirit comes into me and He begins transforming me from the inside out. Now, it doesn't mean that all your temptations are going to go away. It doesn't mean all your feelings that are opposed to the teachings of Almighty God are just going to vanish before your sight. That's not it at all. But it means that God is going to begin a transformative work in you that will carry you through the rest of your life and prepare you for glory as He makes you more like Jesus. And, and sometimes that's painful. There's a reason the Bible uses the, the imagery of a refiner's fire, that God refines us as in a fire. And, and that means sometimes He has to warn us about very hard things. He has to warn us about truths that the culture around us affirms, but God doesn't affirm. Why? Because He loves us. He loves us. You know, my kids have people who affirm a lot of things in them. I'm sure when my son gets his driver's license, he will have people around him who tell him to test out the top register of that speedometer. And my job and his mother's job is to say, yeah, don't do that. That could result in a go-to-jail ticket. You know what I'm talking about when I say a go-to-jail ticket. doesn't mean you pay for it and go to court. It means they take you away. But it could also result in your death or somebody else's. Don't do that. So we have the opportunity and the responsibility because we love our child to warn him. Well, Jesus is here saying this, look, if you're going to be of Almighty God, if you're going to be the people of God, that ought to make a difference in your life. You ought to bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And Israel, for a long time, had not borne any fruit to indicate in any way that they were the people of Almighty God. And so he tells this parable, cut it down. Why should you let it use up the ground? There are nutrients in that soil that actual people who want to trust and follow Almighty God can use. And so the vine dresser, the, the gardener, the, the, the 
farmer says, sir, let it alone this year until I dig around and put on manure, and then if it should bear fruit next year, well and good, but if not, you can cut it down. Jesus is saying he has come to God's people to give them truth and hope and light, to call them to himself so that they might bear fruit in keeping with being God's people. But he's also communicating that at some point, the day of mercy comes to an end and the day of judgment arrives. Just as in the days of Noah, it was only Noah, his wife, their three sons and their wives who were on the ark. For the entire duration of the time that they were building the ark, the the mercy of God was available, but they didn't want it. The people didn't want it. Every inclination of their hearts was only evil all the time, and, and then judgment came. When the door of the ark was shut, and the springs of the earth burst forth, and the heavens opened with rain, and I can only imagine that once the day of judgment came, there were people who wanted the mercy of God, but there was no more time for the mercy of God. And so Jesus implores us, don't wait. Today is the day of salvation. Today is the day to trust and follow Jesus. The day will come when the opportunity is no more. Don't presume upon the long-suffering of God. Jesus' arms are open for you today. Come today. And I've been in ministry for two decades in this area, and people have never said these words, but functionally they've said it. No, I want to live in hell just a little while longer. I want to take my chances just a little while longer. Why would you die? Why would you presume upon the long-suffering of God who hasn't returned yet because he's extending mercy, but one day that mercy will come to an end? So why? Come to Jesus. Find everlasting life and forgiveness in Jesus. Rest in Jesus, for in him and in him alone is life everlasting. Thank you for listening, and we hope you'll join us next time. We'd love to connect with you. Just email connect at firstbaptistbg.org or call 270-842-0331.